Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you. So let's get to it. Jump in, back into Ezra, just as a reminder. Ezra is about uh, 500 years before Jesus And it's about the exiles of Israel returning from slavery in Babylon to Jerusalem. And they've got this job of rebuilding Jerusalem and first and foremost, rebuilding the temple. And we've said that this is the same thing that God has invited us into as believers. This is just a shadow of what Jesus actually does. We rebuild the temple, but Jesus says our temple isn't built with bricks and stones. Our temple is built with people. It's the church of Jesus Christ. If you want to meet with God, you meet with God at his temple and his temple is his people. The church is not a place or an event. The church is the people. And we, uh, we also rebuild Jerusalem, but we're not just rebuilding and restoring Jerusalem. Jesus has called us to rebuild and to restore the world. The exile's mission starts or ends in Jerusalem. Jesus' mission starts in Jerusalem, and he says, now spread it throughout the world. So there's much for us to learn from this. And in chapter 3, we see the first things that they are doing when they arrive. What do they do? How do they begin to rebuild what has been destroyed? And how do we as Christians restore the world? How do we as Christians build the church that Jesus would want us to have? And last week we looked at verses 1 through 5, and we said it starts with us as individuals being worshipers of God. And we said worship is not just about singing. Worship is so much bigger than singing because worship is what you value the most and what you serve. And everybody worships something. If you want to know what you worship, look at your bank account and look at your calendar. Your bank account will tell me what you value and your calendar will tell me what you serve. You can put your head in the oven and call yourself a biscuit. It doesn't mean you're a biscuit. You can. That's funnier in my head than you guys responded, but that's okay. It's going to be one of those days. If you, if you call yourself a worshiper of God, well, then it'll show up in your life. You value him the most and you serve him the most. Well, now as we move into verses 6 through the end, we're going to look more corporately. What does it look like for us as a church to do this thing? And there's three things that I see that we've got to be uh, about. Three kind of characteristics of a church that's going to make a difference. And I want to make a difference, and I'm sure you want to make a difference. I don't want to end my life by not making any kind of difference in this world. And Jesus has called me into something great You know, when I grew up, Christianity for me, a lot of times, and it's not because of the teachers, it's probably because of my misunderstanding. Uh, For me, though, I thought Christianity was about raising your hand so you don't go to hell when you die, and then you kind of just grit your teeth through the rest of life. You know, it's like show up to church when you can. You're going to be really bored. It's not really going to be a lot of purpose found in it. And really, the only reason you're here is for fire insurance. Well, Jesus presents a much, much different gospel, a much richer gospel in which we're invited into this thing with Jesus, of restoring the world, of calling exiles home to him. And if that's going to be us here in Northwest Oklahoma, then there's three things we've got to be about. We've got to have a bias for action. We have to be Jesus-led, and we have to have passionate worship. This is the marks of a community on mission. But before I go into that, I want to just look at verse 13, because verse 13 at the end of the text is really my favorite verse in all of Ezra. It's just it's really poetic. It's a beautiful verse, and it really describes a lot of the church, and it describes a lot of today as I think about our last time here meeting at the Moose Lodge and moving to Fargo in two weeks, and we're really excited about that. Uh, But it's also a little bit bittersweet. And verse 13 says this, The people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouting, From that of the weeping, because the people were shouting so loudly and the sound was heard far away. I love that picture because as a pastor, I get to see this as true. At any given time, there are people worshiping God in their weeping. And at any given time, there are people worshiping God in their joy. And I love how the sound comes up and it's one sound. 
It's this one sound of worshiping. People worshiping God in the valley lows and people worshiping God on the mountaintops. It's one of the most interesting things as a pastor. On any given day, I can talk to somebody who's having the best day of their life and the worst day of their life. I can talk to somebody who just had a baby and somebody who just lost somebody that they love. Somebody who's getting married and somebody who's one signature away from divorce. On any given day, in this church family, in a room this size, some of you are weeping and some of you are rejoicing. And yet in God's family, that is one sound. That is one sound of worship. This is why Paul in Romans, he says, we ought to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. That God never promises us that it will be all sweet and up and to the right. But he does promise us that he'll be with us, whether we're in the valley lows or the mountaintops. And today is a little bit bittersweet. As we're moving and we're changing. And uh, Molly, who led our worship, this is her last Sunday leading worship for us. uh, She's moving on. And I'm excited about the future of what we're going to do in worship and and the things we've got going there. But I'm also a little bit sad. And I think that's okay. Uh, I've heard uh, bittersweet as described as watching your mother-in-law drive off a cliff in a brand new Cadillac. (laughs) That's probably the last time I can say inappropriate jokes like that from a bar. Um, <laughs> guys got to stick with me here. But, but truly, uh, as, as we go through this day, and as you go through your life, I, I think that this verse is a verse that really applies uh, to so much of our life. And, uh, and I love it. And I love what we're doing. And I love the future of Ascent Church. But I, I did want to acknowledge that. It's also a sweet day for me because uh, our 21 days of prayer and fasting is over. Uh, which is really exciting because that means I'm going to be in a diet coke coma by the end of this afternoon, probably, even though I can't taste anything right now. Uh, I mean, I can't taste. Oh, gosh, everybody's like, he has COVID. <laughs> I can't, I, it's the kind of losing your taste from allergies. You got to be careful when you talk. All right. I am really hyped up on a lot of allergy medicine right now, so I don't even, I'm not even going to remember what I said. Uh, let's jump into it. Number one is a bias for action. Bias for action. Look at verses 6 and 7 with me. This is the marks of a community on mission. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, even though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. They gave money to the stonecutters and artisans and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, so they would bring cedar wood from Lebanon to Joppa by sea, according to the authorization given them by King Cyrus of Persia. So they get there, and the first thing they do is they restore the right worship. They're, they're doing what God said to do with the sacrifices, and then they get their liturgical calendar set up. But then what do they do? Well, they take an offering, and they get to work. They start paying people. They start buying supplies. They begin to move. And as a church family, we've got to be that way, always moving forward. There's two types of sins. There's the sins of uh, commission and the sins of omission. And we tend to think just of the sins of commission, which is the sins that you do. But there's also this whole other category of sins, of things that you left undone. And I do not want to be a church that we play it safe so that we're not making any mistakes. Because one day we will stand before our Savior and He'll say, what did you do with what I gave you? <laughs> there's this story in the Gospels of Jesus where he's, uh, he, he, it's a parable about people who wasted their life. It's, a, it's called the parable of the talents. That word talent is bigger than our word talent. It means their money, their stuff, everything they have uh, and, their, and their talents. And uh, in this, he, he gives money to, gives these talents to these different people. And then he comes back and he asks them what they did with what they had. And the last guy had one talent and he buried it. He said, I'm just going to save this for Jesus. I don't want to risk anything because if I risk it, I might lose it. 
And when Jesus gets back, he has some really harsh words for him. This is uh, Matthew 25, verse 26 through 29. His master replied to him, you evil, lazy servant. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers and I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Friends, I don't want to stand before Jesus one day and sit him look at me and say, you evil, lazy servant. And by the way, I've got a lot of things that Jesus has given me that other people don't have around the world. I've got way more privileges than the people I've met in the Dominican Republic who you go there and it completely change your perspective because you find these little boys and little girls playing soccer with a ball that is literally made out of duct tape, shoestrings, and hay. Like what, what privileges do I have? And those privileges have not just been given to me for me. They've been given for me to use. And I've been given uh, the gift of preaching. And it may not be the best gift. You might not like my preaching as much as you like other people's preaching. I don't even like my preaching as much as I like other people's preaching. But here's what I do know. I have to use it to the best of my ability. I have what God has given me. And I've got to use that for His kingdom. Because one day I will stand before Him and He'll say, What did you do with what I gave you? And if you're a part of this church family, one day we'll all stand before Him and say, What did you guys do with what I gave you? I I, I do not want to be a part of a church that just plays it safe. I've been a part of churches that play it safe and God bless them. It's very comfortable and easy and it's like a country club and I'm glad. If you want to go to that church, go to that church. But we're not going to be that church. We're going to be a church that moves forward. I don't want to be a constipated church. You ever see see a constipated church? Like a lot comes in but nothing comes out ever? Oh gosh. That's not in my notes, if you're wondering. <laughs> it's true, though. I remember one time I was a part of a church, and they were, they were doing their financial reports, and this church had three years' worth of budget and savings account. Why? You know, and it struck me wrong at the time. Like, why? That seems weird. That seems odd to me. But I didn't really know why. It was like, you know, maybe it is okay. I don't know. And uh, then I was talking to uh, a pastor that I respect, and he said, no, that's not Okay. That's not okay at all. He said, the problem that they have is that they're in the wrong mindset. You know, when a country is in, uh, in wartime and peacetime, they spend their money differently. If a country is in peace, then what you do is you're thinking about the future, and so you take money and you save, and you, you know, you're building infrastructure and these kind of things. But when World War II is breaking out and the Nazis are attacking, what do you do? You spend every ounce of what you have to get the job done. I mean, who cares if you have billions of dollars in savings, but Nazis rule the world? It doesn't matter, right? Wartime is different. That's not to say we're not wise with our money, that we have some savings, but three years is a bit much, is it not? And it's not just money. It's our talents and our skills and and what we can do for the kingdom of God. When you come to this church, I, I believe as a pastor, part of my job is to steward your gifts and to try to help you find a place to plug in and to use the gifts that God has given you. I take that very serious. I don't want us just to be a church where people come and sit down and listen to me talk. There's way better ways to spend your Sunday than doing that. I want to, that laughter hurts, Liz. <laughs> We're an army that I'm supposed to partly mobilize for the good of kingdom, for the good of the kingdom, to push back the darkness. I, I, I have, in part, one of the things God has given me is you. 
one of the things I'll answer for as a pastor, and this is a very serious weight on me, is what did you do with the people I gave you? Did you love them? Did you shepherd them? Did you mobilize them? Did you help them maximize everything they had? That's a very serious thing. If we're going to be a church that moves forward, we've got to be a church that is biased for action. There's a guy named uh, Donald Miller. He's a, he's a business guy. I like a lot of what he says. But uh, he's got a lot of cool opportunities. He's met with like presidents and billionaires. And he wrote a book uh, about high performers. And he said, for this book, I was like on private jets and, and all this stuff in these mansions with these people. And he said, beforehand, I thought they were just really going to be geniuses. And he said, it struck me that they're all just really average people. <laughs> he's like, what is up with this? Some of these people are below average in their intellect. And he said what set them apart from everybody else is that they had a bias for action. They did stuff. While everybody else sat around thinking about what to do, those people were already doing stuff. And if they messed up, they just changed their plan a little bit as they went. They executed what was before them. And he said, so I went into my business and I started trying to do the same thing. And he's a lot like me in the fact that like, he loves ideas, which maybe are some of you. And what happens if you love ideas is you can become idealistic. And not actually do anything, but just be in kind of the land of ideas. And he said, when I got out of the land of ideas and I actually started doing things, he said, my company's profit went up three times. Now, if you're a business person, there's some business advice for you. But I don't really care about the business advice behind that. What I care about is the fact that when we start doing things, things happen. And as a church family, we might make mistakes. We might go backwards sometimes, but I'd rather go backwards because we're trying to move forward rather than backwards because we're just sitting still in a stagnant pond. We've got to be a church biased for action. Jim Elliott is a um, missionary, uh, was a missionary. He gave his life uh, trying to reach a, a, an island uh, when he was in his 20s. And he has this quote that's really famous. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Do you have an eternal perspective or do you have an earthly perspective? Because it'll change. If you have an earthly perspective, you're going to have a lot of gas left in the tank when you get home. You're going to work till you're 60. You're going to retire and kick back and relax. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I hope when I retire, I get to go to Florida a couple times and play some golf. But I don't want to stand before Jesus with a whole bunch of gas left in my tank. I want to stand before him and say, I gave everything I have for this kingdom. And I want to hear above all. And I want you guys to hear. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Number two is we got to be Jesus-led. We're not Blake-led. We're Jesus-led. Number two, starting in verse 8 and 9, it says, In the second month of the second year after they arrived at God's house in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shetiel, Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, and the rest of their brothers, including the priests, the Levites, and all who had returned to Jerusalem from captivity, began to build. They appointed the Levites who were 20 years old or more to supervise the work on the Lord's house. Joshua and his sons and brothers, Kadamiel with his sons and the sons of Judah and of Hedadad with their sons and brothers, the Levites joined together to supervise those working on the house of God. What I find interesting about this uh, is that the name Joshua in the Hebrew, when translated into the Greek, is the name Yeshua. And Yeshua, when translated to English, is the name Jesus. Who's the leader of this? Well, it's the Levites, but the main leader here is Jesus. It's not the Jesus we're thinking of, but it's pointing forward. It's a shadow pointing forward to the ultimate leader of the church, Jesus. And we have Levites, don't we, in a sense? That's what my job is. I'm an under-shepherd. 
I, I, I'm to shepherd you guys while I'm here. But one day you're going to die or move and you'll have a new shepherd. One day I'm going to die. Sometime like last night, I started feeling like it might have been pretty soon. Started seeing the light. One day you're going to have a different pastor, but you will never, never, as long as you're in the church of Jesus, have a different senior pastor. Now, I know some churches call their lead guy senior pastor. I, I like to go with lead pastor because right now I'm just leading. One day I will be not leading and I'll be sitting out there and some young guy will be preaching and I'll be old and say, I don't like the music they choose. But right now I'm the young guy uh, preaching. I don't know. Is somebody keeping track of the offensive things I'm saying? Because it's got to be getting high. But even when Blake Farley is not the senior or the lead pastor, rather, of Ascent Church, Jesus Christ will still be the senior pastor. Jesus Christ will still be guiding this church. Jesus Christ will still be loving this church more than I could ever love it and leading this church better than I could ever lead it. There's three things that means when we say Jesus is the leader of our church. That means we prioritize what he prioritizes. If you want to know what Jesus prioritizes, read the Gospels. I would especially start in Matthew 5. He tells us we're to care for the poor and the thirsty, that we're to seek those, we're to help those who hunger for righteousness, and we're to spread his message, his gospel good news message, that there's a way in which you can be made right with God through him. I'm supposed to preach that exiles are brought home into the family of God, and we're supposed to go out and not just tell people about Jesus, but show them the love of Jesus. That even the people who don't believe what we believe would say, those people are nuts, but I'm sure glad they're here. You know, the people who wouldn't even believe what you believe, but when they need somebody to let their dog out when they're out of town, they give you the keys because they know you're a person of integrity. They know you're trustworthy. That business people want to hire you to work for them because they know you work hard. And you work hard because you're not working for them, you're working unto the Lord. This is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to prioritize what Jesus prioritizes. That means we don't prioritize whatever political party is, happens to be the one in power, the one we like prioritizes. You know, uh, I, I heard that political parties are a lot like Coke and Pepsi. You might like the flavor of one better, but they both rot your teeth. It's true. So I do not want to be on the side of the kingdoms of this world. I want to be on the side of the kingdom of Jesus. I'm going to prioritize what he prioritizes. Number two, it means we preach his words. We preach his words. This is why I preach the Bible. Because I don't want you to come hear Blake's opinion on things. Now, maybe when I am that 65-year-old pastor and I have a whole bunch of experience and I've lived a lot of life, uh, maybe you guys will take my opinions more serious. But even then, I'm just going to be 65 compared to God who is eternal. Who would you rather listen to? You know, it, it cracks me up when I hear, especially kids my age, start saying things like, you know, I don't believe the Bible. And then they, they start telling you about all these things that they think they understand about the Bible. And I'm like, okay, like you can't even lick your elbow. Who are you? <laughs> you know, one of, the, one of the philosophers that I've listened to in the past, uh, his name is uh, Jordan Peterson. And he has this part that I like where he talks about kids, mainly my age, 20s or 30s, people who, you know, they show up and they pick it at these things and, and they're, they're really sure that the Bible's wrong and they're fully right. And he, he says, how about you guys try to clean your room first? You know, you didn't even brush your teeth this morning and you're saying the God of the universe is wrong about something? Give me a break. And it's not just kids like me, it's everybody. So many of us get so pompous and arrogant and we think we know better than God. Uh, there's a, an old uh, philosopher named Voltaire. He was atheist and he really hated uh, the Bible. He really hated God. And he has this quote in about the year 1600 something. He says, in 100 years, the Bible will be forgotten. 
Well, the only thing that's been forgotten is that quote. And I love the irony of God. I love it. Because the French Bible Society bought his house. (laughs) So the the French Bible Society's headquarters was in the house of Voltaire, who said in 100 years, the Bible will be forgotten. There was a a book in 1851 that was uh, titled, 51 Irrefutable Facts That Prove the Bible Is Not True. Well, all 51 of those facts have been refuted now. See, the Bible is timeless. It is the rock that we stand on. I don't don't want to stand on something that's shifting and moving like everything else. So I stand on the Word of God. I stand on what Jesus says. My my favorite story uh, is probably not true, but I never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Amen. Uh, It's a story about a third grader who had a teacher that was a, a mean atheist. Uh, you know, I know a lot of atheists who are kind and they just they don't believe. And uh, you, know, you can have conversations with them and they're friendly people. But then there's like this other kind who are mad because of what God did to them. And so they're, they're angry about it. And uh, this little girl had a teacher like that. And she was talking about the Bible. And this little girl said, I believe in the Bible. And the teacher said, you really do? You don't you believe that Jonah had time in a well and didn't die? And the little girl said, yeah, I, I believe that. Uh, and she said, well, how do you think that happened? And the little girl said, well, when I get to heaven, I'll ask him how it happened. And uh, the teacher said, well, what if you're wrong? What if Jonah's in hell? And the little girl said, well, then you can ask him. <laughs> oh, That's a good one. Probably not true. What are we going to do? We're going to build our church on the words of Jesus. Number three is we believe in his work. What Jesus did is what I believe is true. It's very important that we believe Jesus was a real person because he was. And he really came and he really lived a life that I could not live. And he really died a death I deserve to die. And he really rose again on the third day. If this is not true, then we are to be pitied more than anybody else, Paul says. This is pointless if there is not the true Jesus who came and truly lived and truly died and truly rose again. And so each week I will preach that old message, that old simple message every single week. That through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, we have access to the kingdom of God and we can be invited into the family of God. We believe in His work. Jesus says this. I'm going to read it from the message paraphrase in Luke 9, 23 and 27. He says, Then He told them what they could expect for themselves. And this is for any of you who want to follow Jesus. This is for us. Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way to finding yourself, your true self. What good would it do to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? If any of you is embarrassed with me and the way I'm leading you, know that the Son of Man will be more embarrassed with you when he arrives in all of his splendor in the company with the Father and the holy angels. This isn't, you realize, pie in the sky by and by. Some who have taken their stand right here are going to see it happen. See with their own eyes the kingdom of God. If you're embarrassed with the way Jesus leads us, the door's right there because he's going to be the senior pastor of this church. And the moment he's not is the moment I'm finding a new church and I think you ought to also. We're going to be Jesus-led. Number three is we are to be passionate worshipers. We worship passionately. And I'll state again that worship is not just singing, but our singing should be worship. That's what we see in verses 10 and 11. After the foundation is laid, they've got to stop and celebrate. They're throwing a party. You know it's a party because there's symbols. 
I mean, if there's symbols, it's going to be a good time. Verse 10. When the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests dressed in their robes and holding trumpets. And the Levites descended from Asaph, holding symbols, took their positions to praise the Lord, as King David of Israel had instructed. They sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, for He is good. His faithful love to Israel endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the Lord's house had been laid. Worship uh, in the kingdom is going to be loud. I hope you guys know that. I hope you're prepared for that. Uh, at a former church, uh, I had, uh, there was a lady I knew who, the first time there was drums on the stage, literally walked out of the place. And the reason she walked out of the place was because it was Satan's instrument. And uh, I thought, man, you have not read much of the Old Testament because it's way louder than what we're doing. There's symbols and there's shouting and there's praise. Why? Because when something is that amazing, what do you do? You shout. That's why at football games you hear the crowd in unison yelling. Why? Because they're responding to what they see for better or for worse. And I think for a lot of us, we don't have a singing problem. We have a seeing problem. It's not that we don't want to sing. It's that we haven't seen how great God is. Because if we did, then the only response we could have would be to shout with joy. To worship Him. And throughout the Bible, what God wants is He wants His people to sing to Him. That's what he wants. He commands you to sing him over and over and over and over again. In fact, in Ephesians, it says this is how we are filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't even know what that means, to be completely honest with you. It says don't be drunk with alcohol. And then it goes straight into singing so that you might be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a means, a way in which God blesses us. God doesn't want us to sing to him because he, you know, he's arrogant or egotistical. No, every time we try to serve God, it's like a boomerang. It comes back to us tenfold. So when we sing to God, it's God's way of serving us. But even if it wasn't, and you call yourself a Jesus follower, then you ought to sing anyways, even if you don't understand why. Because who's the king of your life? Is it you or is it Jesus? You should sing. There's some uh, excuses that I hear and there are excuses that I've used. Uh, people say things like, I don't like to sing, so I'm not going to sing. And I would say, well, that's great. But it's not about you. It's about Jesus and he wants you to sing. So guess what you ought to do? You ought to sing. Uh, or, I don't think my neighbor would like my voice. Well, I know my neighbors don't like my voice, but guess what? I'm not here to worship my neighbors. I'm here to worship God. So what do I do? I sing. And you might say, well, I'm embarrassed what people would think if they heard my voice. That's great. We're not here to worship you. We're here to worship God. So guess what you ought to do? Sing. Yes, you ought to sing. Or, I don't like the music you guys play. That's great. We're not here to worship you. We're here to worship God. So guess what you ought to do? Yeah, you ought to sing. That's what you should do. See, and what it does is it really reveals what you worship. If worship is what I value the most and what I serve the most, then I'll, I'll sing to God when He asks me. And I can prove it to you because some of you would sing if what you really valued, what you really worshiped, asked you to. For instance, if I said, I have a million dollars waiting for you at Bank 7, pick it up tomorrow. All you got to do is for the rest of your life, sing loudly in the church service. Some of you who are embarrassed to sing would start singing all of a sudden. Because you value money. Or, or if I said, I got a magic pill that'll keep you healthy forever and ever and ever. All you got to do is sing. Some of you would say, give me the pill and I'm singing. Why? Because you value your health. Some of you would be a lot more simple than that. Like if your boss asked you to do something like that, you would do it because you, you worship your job. See, and I'm telling you all this because it comes from a place of me not wanting to sing and not wanting to express myself in worship because I was valuing myself. And I had a mentor tell me all of this one time. He shared all of this with me, and I realized that it was selfishness. 
mean, I, I grew up as a Baptist, which means like if you raised your hand during worship, it meant you had a question. You know, they, they would stop the songs. What is that kid doing? Put your hand down. We sing like this the whole time. Praise Jesus. I am so excited. <laughs> so it was hard for me to break out of that. But what I have to constantly remind myself is, is that it's not about me. It's about God. We worship passionately. Now, as we go to verses 12 and 13 to end the text today, we see that this is not going to be easy, this thing that we've signed up for. It's not going to be what we thought it was, but it's going to be better than what we thought it was, but it's going to be very, very difficult. Look at verses 12 and 13 with me. If we're the kind of church that does this, we have a bias for action where Jesus led and we worship passionately, we can expect verses 12 and 13 to be true of us also. But many of the older priests, Levites, and family heads who had seen the first temple wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this temple. But many others shouted joyfully. The people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouting from that of the weeping because the people were shouting so loudly and the sound was heard far away. Why were the older saints the ones who were weeping? Well, Haggai, who's a prophet during this time, gives us some insight. Haggai chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Yeshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of armies. The reason why it's the older saints weeping is because they saw the glory of Solomon's first temple, the one that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And they make this 500-mile journey back, and they begin to rebuild the foundation, and they realize this is going to be way harder than we thought it was, and it's not going to compare to what it used to be. Now, the young people, they're just happy. They've spent their entire life in slavery. So when you've been in slavery your whole life, and you come out and you're not in slavery anymore, you don't compare it to anything else. You're just happy about what God has done. But when we begin to compare, or we begin to think, well, this is going to be harder than what I thought it was, or it doesn't match up with the the fantasies we have in our head, well, then what do we do when it doesn't start to do what we want it to do? We begin to to weep. And I think we've all probably been in this situation at one time or another. You know, whether it is you're, you're trying to do something better for yourself, or you're trying to better your family, or maybe you started a company. For me, as starting a church, you know, there's this kind of thing I have in my mind of what I thought it would be. And then I get into it, and it's just really hard. (laughs) Like, it's just not what I thought it was. And then I get on Instagram or Facebook, and I see other people who appear to be further along than me. And when I should be joyful about what God has done, what what do I do? I'm I'm weeping. (laughs) Because I'm comparing to what I think it ought to be. And yet, this is what God always wants for us. Because we tend to care more about the destination, and Jesus cares more about the journey. Why does Jesus care more about the journey? Because the journey is where the men and women are made. You don't grow any once you make the destination. On the way to the destination, God is creating Blake Farley to be who he wants me to be. I am not the same man I was when we planted ascent. I've had a lot of stuff beaten out of me, and I'm still wrestling. And so God's still beating me. And that's what he does. Why? Because he loves me. He wants to build in me the character that I'm supposed to have. It's about the journey and not about the destination. And that's true in your life also. And it's true for our church's life. It won't always measure up. Uh, N.T. Wright is a writer and a thinker. And uh, he, I was listening to one of his sermons a couple weeks ago. And he talked about how he believed that God allows us to dream big dreams so that we will do things that we wouldn't normally do. And then he actually gets us to do what he wants us to do. 
uh, which I think is so true. Like if I compare Ascent to the dream that I had, that I felt like God was calling me to uh, back when we planted the church, it would not match up at all. Uh, And in fact, if I had seen what this is and what we've been through, I would not have signed up for it. I love you guys. But if I knew the suffering, if I knew what it would look like, I wouldn't have signed up for it because it did not match the vision I had in my head. You know, I didn't plan for a pandemic to happen about five months into the church plan. I didn't plan for relational problems to happen. I didn't plan for the suffering. I didn't plan for the times where we didn't know if we had enough money to keep going. I didn't plan for those things. It wasn't in my vision. (laughs) But God knew it all along. So he said, oh, it's okay, Blake. You can dream whatever you want to dream. Let's just get you on the journey. Because that's what I'm worried about. Uh, There's a church camp in Colorado that Taylor and I have been to. And we've taken youth there. Uh, and it's, it's at this camp, you do various things, you white water raft in like negative 15 degree water. I know that's not even possible, but very cold. Uh, and you hike mountains and you do a whole bunch of outdoor stuff like that. Some of you are like, that's awesome. Not me. It's like all the things from hell. In my opinion, I know you look at me and you think, wow, what a mountaineer he must be. Uh, but actually I'm not, you know, like I can't even breathe half the time. And then as you start climbing the mountain, you lose more and more and more air. I remember the first time we hiked a 14er, which is 14,000 feet to the peak. Uh, I started out okay, you know, just trucking along. And then by about, you know, three quarters of the way up, I couldn't breathe. And all of a sudden, a guy about three times my size passes me. And he looks back, are you okay, man? And I was like, oh, gosh, if you're passing me, no, I'm not okay. Uh, and, And what I didn't know is I was getting altitude sickness. But let me tell you the most annoying part of it. That was our guide. Our guide's name was Steve. I think Steve is still there. And Steve has this very annoying habit of when you ask him, are we, where are we or how close are we? His answer is always the same. It doesn't matter whether you're three steps in or you're literally almost there. He will say we are about halfway. (laughs) It's funny and cute at first. (laughs) Steve, how far are we? About halfway. But by the 17th time he says it, it's not cute anymore. Makes you so mad. So what did I do when Steve said we're about halfway the 18th time? I pushed him off the mountain. (laughs) No, I didn't. (laughs) Wanted to, but I didn't have enough strength to do it. What Steve was trying to teach us by doing that and what he teaches kids by doing that is that's kind of what it's like to follow Jesus. (laughs) It really is. You can only see a few steps ahead of you. You only can see the direct future. We're not really promised what's coming next. But we are promised that Jesus will be with us. He'll be leading us. We don't know if we're halfway there or if we're three steps away from there. And it gets harder and harder and harder. But we're to bear our cross and to follow him because by losing our life, we find our life. And Molly, if you want to go ahead and and come up, I'm going to close here. As I thought about this, I thought of two quotes from my mentor, Stephen Earp. And I think they're really important quotes for us to keep in mind as a church family and as individuals as you try to do anything for the sake of the gospel of God. Stephen said, told me before we planted the church, he said, it'll take longer and cost you more than you ever thought imaginable. That's been true. <laughs> Everything has taken longer and it's cost more than what I thought it would. And then he also said this, he encouraged me. And this is something I've, I just keep in my mind over and over and over again, especially whenever I begin to feel self-pity for myself or I feel like it's too hard. He said, Blake, weeds grow fast, but it takes time to grow oak trees. If you want to grow something fast, you can do it, but that's weeds. You're trying to grow something with roots, something that matters 20 years from now, not just 20 minutes from now. 
That's an oak tree. Well, friends, in your families and in our church family, I pray that we're in the oak tree business. We're, we're taking the time step by step following Jesus. And sometimes we might look at the foundation and say, what is this? It doesn't compare to what they have. It doesn't compare to where it could be. But what do we do in those moments? We keep following Jesus because we believe he can take small things and do amazing big things. We look no further than the cross to see that. Jesus, as he bled and died on the cross, you realize in that moment he had no followers. Peter, James, John, all the heroes of our faith, as they looked at the Messiah on the cross, they thought, it's over. He was supposed to take over the Roman Empire, and now the Roman Empire is killing him on a cross. And yet what they didn't realize was in the biggest, what appeared to them to be the loss was actually God's greatest victory. That what they didn't know at the time, because they didn't have the Gospel of Matthew. You know, we can read the Gospel of Matthew and we know the end of the story. Matthew didn't know it because he was writing it. And what they see as they look in their Savior is they see not a Savior, but somebody who has been destroyed. And yet what was God doing? He was paying for their sins so that they might be children of God. He was defeating the powers of evil by them exhausting everything they had on Him. And what appeared to be the worst defeat was actually the greatest victory. And three days later, there was a resurrection. (coughs) Friends, as we follow Jesus, as we move to Fargo, we're going to have times where in a bias of action, we think we're moving forward and we're taking a step back. And yet, what do we do in those moments? We keep following Jesus because we're Jesus-led. And in all things, in all things, we worship Him passionately. Let me pray for us. Father, you are so good. Jesus, you are so faithful to us. If we ever forget your faithfulness, may we look back to the cross. God, that in our greatest need, while we were enemies, you gave your life for us. And so I join with the Apostle Paul in saying, if God would not spare even his own son, how will he not also give us all of these things? Jesus, we love you. And we thank you. We thank you for this season that we're leaving behind. And we thank you for the season that is coming up. Jesus, be with us as a church. We don't want to go without you. We don't want to be led by anyone but you. Friends, if you would, take about 20 seconds with your eyes closed and head bowed. And just say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? Father, I pray that you'd give us the courage and the strength to obey what you've called us to do. God, we know it is you who is willing and working this out in us. We love you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Friends, let's stand and sing. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.